Al Jazeera podcast. What's the extent of US military aid to Israel in its war on Gaza? Washington has been sending military assets to the region, saying they're for deterrence purposes. But are they really? And could that trigger a wider conflict in the Middle East? I'm James Bayes, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Well, let's bring in our panel of guests to discuss all this further. In Doha, we have Colin Clark, who's Director of Research at the Sufan Group, a global intelligence and security consultancy. In New York, it's Omar Rahman. He's a fellow at the Middle East Council on Global Affairs, where he focuses on Palestine, Middle East geopolitics and American foreign policy in the region. And in Boston, it's Glenn Carl, a career CIA officer. He's a former Deputy National Intelligence Officer for Transnational Threats at the agency. Great to have you all with us to discuss uh, what is going on in the region and particularly what's going on with regard to the US deployments because more and more uh, US assets are going to the region, particularly naval assets. Some people say it's the biggest armada that's been seen uh, in the region since the 1990s. Glenn, would you agree with that? Well, I don't know if that's true, but I certainly believe that it is uh, true. Two uh, aircraft carriers uh, bring along as part of their combat—I um, forget the, the term slips my mind for the moment—but in any event, they deploy with probably a dozen ships or more each. Uh, so I think that's probably a true statement, yes. And Colin, I've been looking it's quite hard, quite opaque to get information off the off the Pentagon website, but reading through all the transcripts and everything that's out there in public, um, as Glenn says, I mean, we've got the largest warship in the world, the USS Gerald Ford. We've got another um, aircraft carrier, so two aircraft carriers, the Dwight D. Eisenhower, uh, which is also there. And then I think a total of eight warships in their two strike groups. And then we've got something called the Bataan Amphibious Ready Group, uh, which has uh, on three ships a total of 4,000 sailors and marines on it. Th this is this is a very large deployment, isn't it, Colin? Yeah, it's a it's a massive muscular response from Washington. Multiple carrier strike groups, uh, you know, Patriot batteries, Thad uh, missile defense. This Sorry, is about. I, I, we're not going to allow any jargon. Just tell me what Thad is, please, quickly. <laughs> Terminal high altitude air defense uh, missile missile defense essentially uh, force protection uh, deterrence uh, and then if need be some uh, potential offensive assets. There's also intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance uh, on these carrier strike groups as well. So all around preparation from Washington in case things do escalate. And Colin, staying with you, what is your reading of the main reason for sending so much uh, to the region? I think, you know, first of all, it's deterrence. It's a warning to the Iranians. It's a warning to Iranian-sponsored groups like Hezbollah to remain on the sidelines or at least to keep activity at a very low and manageable level. Uh, but again, it's also to protect the bases that the United States has in the region. It's about force protection. And lastly, it's about preparation. Uh, the Biden administration is still stung from the withdrawal from Afghanistan, how poorly things went there. Uh, and they want to be prepared in case they need these assets, including to evacuate American citizens from a number of countries in the Middle East. Omar, let me ask you how you think this will be seen in the region, because one person's deterrence could be another person's provocation. 
Yeah, I think uh, it, uh, opinion on this will be split in the region to some extent based on your relationship with the United States and uh, where you're coming from and how you're viewing the current uh, conflict. Although I think uh, across the Arab world, uh, there is heavy concern for this escalating. And, you know, in some senses, uh, maybe not a provocation, but uh, certainly the U.S. is is escalating the situation by bringing in uh, hu huge naval forces uh, into the region. And it's, in, in a sense, emboldening Israel to carry on uh, what it's doing in Gaza. And that is the, obviously uh, the source of the escalation at the moment. That is the reason why there's anger erupting across the Arab world. That would be the reason why you might see attacks on uh, U.S. military bases in the region uh, or, uh, you know, what we've seen, maybe uh, Houthi rebels uh, firing rockets towards Israel, if that's uh, actually where they were headed. Uh, so, you know, at the heart of it, it's, you know, it's emboldening Israelite, I think, to carry out uh, this mission in the region. Glenn, uh, see if I'm right with my assumption here. My assumption is that uh, they are sending this big armada because they can't use their military bases, of, uh, air base in Doha and their naval base in Bahrain because of the circumstances right now. Does that seem correct to you? Uh, partially correct. Uh, it certainly would be a complicating factor to use forces out of Doha, given um, Qatar's relationship with uh, Hamas and uh, the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, however, I don't think that's really the primary reason. I think, as the, uh, I believe it's Colin, the first uh, speaker said, uh, clearly to me, the primary objective is deterrence, dissuasion. The, the buildup is not really uh, to um, enable the Israelis to act, but rather to keep the conflict from spreading, becoming a regional or even broader war. And I think that most, uh, we call them Arab governments, but they're, in this instance, it's more relevant to say Muslim uh, countries, uh, understand that and, and uh, don't want to see the conflict uh, generalize, and so really are um, accepting of the U.S. deployment. Now, the, what we call the Arab street is another matter. And uh, Muslims, of course, will be um, dissatisfied and angered by what they will characterize as a provocation. But, but to me, clearly, the objective of the United States is to stop Iran's proxies from uh, so provoking Israel or the United States uh, that the uh, conflict generalizes into a wider war. Colin, um, we've talked about the deterrence role, but there's also a role in protecting U.S. assets that are already in the region. Let me read you a quote from the Pentagon Press Secretary, Brigadier General Pat Ryder. We will do everything and take all necessary measures to protect U.S. forces. We've already seen some instances um, with regard to what has gone on in the Red Sea and what has happened in Iraq and Syria. Let me take those one by one. First, in the Red Sea, there... Um, there was a U.S. warship, the USS Kearney, which took down four land-attack cruise missiles. We think they came from the Houthis. Is that your understanding? Yeah, it seems likely. Uh, it's consonant with previous behavior and actions by the Houthis. And for the United States, it's just unacceptable. It's not going to allow its personnel or its bases to be targeted by any actor in the region. And, and on that, Colin, um, do we know what the Houthis were aiming at? Because uh, the, US, the Pentagon spokesman, again, said they took them down, but they didn't necessarily think they were aimed at the Kani and they were going in the direction of Israel. To your knowledge, do the Houthis have anything that could hit Israel? It's possible. I think, you know, they, they very well could have been headed that way. Uh, I think 
you know, one thing that this whole conflict has taught us is that uh, we need to question prior assumptions, right? I think uh, many people didn't think Hamas had the capabilities that it displayed on October 7th. So I would be very concerned about uh, examining prior assumptions about the capabilities of Hezbollah, the Houthis, Iraqi Shia militia, and others. I think, you know, clearly the Iranians have helped them develop capabilities. They've given them uh, all sorts of uh, different hardware and missiles. And so uh, at this at this point, uh, we're still in the early stages of this conflict. We're hoping to keep it to a low boil. Uh, it's best to be in a defensive posture. Glenn, we've also seen attacks in Syria and Iraq. There are still, based in Iraq, 2,500 U.S. troops. And in Syria, there are 900 uh, U.S. troops, but also a lot of military contractors. I mean, I think some people, to start with, would be quite surprised there are so many U.S. troops still in Iraq and Syria. What are they doing? Well, multiple uh, missions. One, of course, is to continue uh, to uh, observe and try to stop um, uh, ISIS or jihadist uh, groups and elements from uh, conducting uh, terrorist uh, operations and destabilizing things. Another is to help uh, try to keep the uh, governments in place from being destabilized further by uh, such terrorist actions. And the third is, of course, to watch over, to the extent uh, possible, um, Iranian efforts to extend its influence, which is uh, a large component of what we're seeing happening with the Houthi, with the groups in Syria, with um, Hezbollah on the border, and with Hamas. Uh, and Iran is playing a cynical, very dangerous game. Uh, destabilization and uh, trouble, uh, death and turmoil in Israel is a good thing for uh, Iran because it's hostile to Israel on theological, philosophical and political reasons, and two, because it helps Iran extend its influence. So the one of the missions of the U.S. presence there is to try to keep this kind of destabilization from occurring uh, and uh, really to stop uh, Shia, uh, meaning Iranian, uh, influence from uh, from spreading even further than it has. Omar, apparently we think about eight attacks on U.S. troops in four different locations in Iraq and Syria. And it's interesting reading what's been said by the U.S. hierarchy. Uh, I've quoted the Pentagon press secretary before. We don't necessarily see that Iran has explicitly ordered them, yet the White House and the uh, strategic communications coordinator, John Kirby, we know that Iran is closely monitoring these attacks and, in some cases, actively facilitating these attacks. What's your view on how involved Iran is? Is Iran ordering this? Uh, whether they're ordering the attacks uh, in places like Syria and Iraq, I mean, it's it's probable given their links uh, to uh, uh, to those uh, those groups that are operating in those countries. I think uh, it was a little overstated. I think in in terms of uh, you know their their connection to the initial Hamas attack on October seventh. I mean, clearly they're a, you know a sponsor, a financial backer, a material backer of Hamas. But you know, they're a lot of the reporting that came up out, out of October seventh. You know, implied or directly asserted that you know Iran was heavily involved in the planning process. I think that uh, is overstating the overstating the connection. But certainly, I think uh, their connection is much deeper uh, to the armed groups that are operating in Syria and Iraq. Uh, and so, you know, I, you know, I don't know whether they're directly involved, but it's uh, you know worth it's worth considering for sure. Okay, back to you, Colin, because you brought up that acronym FAD in the first place. 
what the US is deploying, it seems, because of these specific attacks in Iraq and Syria is this Terminal High Altitude Area Defense System, or THAAD, and also some additional, and there's no specified number here, Patriot battalions also. Just explain to me what these things do. Uh, Patriot are missile missile defense batteries, surface-to-air missiles that are going to be used to guard against what we saw uh, just the other day against the numerous attacks and provocations from uh, various Iranian-backed actors in the region. Uh, the United States and the Pentagon clearly expects more of that in the days ahead. Uh, and so this is, again, a defensive and precautionary measure to protect United States assets. It's, it's nothing more, it's nothing less. Uh, the Iranians, for their part, are doing what they always do. They're continuing to attempt to push uh, the United States out of the region and extend their own influence. Glenn, we've got 2,000 extra troops, in addition to those Marines I told you about, who are at sea, um, and all the other naval personnel, 2,000 extra U.S. troops are on standby to deploy with high readiness. I mean, is there, what are the circumstances in which these troops could actually do something? Because one assumes you deploy troops, yes, you deploy them as a deterrence, but you have to think about where you, when you might use them, and there might be circumstances when they could be used. What would you say to that? Uh, this is where the line is uh, not easy to draw very clearly, but I think the example of the Kearney uh, gives a good indication. Uh, the video that I think numbers of us have seen, which purports to be taken from the Houthi who fired the rocket, to um, an untutored eye such as mine, it appeared that it was firing at the ship, and you could hear the people saying, well, essentially, let's see how, what America does to that and, and take it America. But the response for the U.S. was to to shoot down uh, the missile and then to say it had occurred and do nothing else. Uh, in other circumstances, uh, um, the military, the United States, would want to eliminate the threat, the perpetrator of uh, an attack like that. Uh, but it hasn't happened. Why? Because it seems pretty clear that uh, the description of the THAAD system that we just heard from Colin, I think it was, um, make, describes what U.S. objectives are, which is to parry um, attacks and to keep the violence, the war, from spreading. If, however, the U.S. forces and facilities were seriously harmed, um, Americans killed and, and uh, capabilities uh, destroyed, uh, then it would be much more difficult for the United States not to use the 2,000 um, uh, soldiers, uh, Marines, I think they are, who are in place as a dissuasive measure. They are there not to be used. The success is not to see them have to be deployed. Uh, failure of uh, American objectives would be that uh, the Iranian proxies succeed in causing such harm that the U.S. or Israel would feel obliged to respond with uh, with force rather than just uh, countermeasures. Omar, so th if the U.S. are attacked, that is what the forces are there for, and, might, and that's when they might actually be used. Do you see any other circumstances where these forces could be deployed, given how uncertain things are with regard to the war on Gaza and a possible escalation in the north bringing in Hezbollah? Yeah, I think the the primary reason for them being there, and this was obviously mentioned, uh, is you know, or the primary maybe cause of escalation would be if U.S. forces were attacked. But I think if there was a, a massive assault on Israel, say Hezbollah was to fire, 
uh, you know, thousands of rockets into Israel, you might see the United States respond. And I think that's obviously part of the reason it's there. Uh, I mentioned earlier, you know, it's enabling the Israelis. Obviously, uh, you know, I didn't want to imply that the U.S. was seeking escalation uh, in the region. The carrier forces are there to deter. Uh, but obviously, you know, that type of deterrence uh, is read by Israel as a kind of a license to do what it wants. And that can cause spark a type of escalation. So if it does come from Lebanon, uh, or if it comes from elsewhere, Iran or uh, Syria or Iraq in kind of a massive scale, something that can't be uh, you know, handled uh, with minimal effort, then I could see the U.S. getting involved in this. And that's a very slippery slope and a dangerous, uh, a dangerous occurrence. Colin, to you quickly, I mean, are there other possible roles given you've got all of these naval assets there? Let me give you some examples. Could, could there be a role for them in extraction of US citizens who are being held captive? Could there be a role in intelligence and surveillance and whatever for Israel? I mean, I assume they have quite a lot of capabilities in that regard. And could there be a base for some sort of covert action by special forces? Look, the, the troops are not purely ornamental. They're there for a reason. Uh, again, I think this is largely about preparation. Uh, this is about the possibility of a NEO, a non-combatant evacuation operation, uh, getting U.S. citizens out of the region if need be, uh, logistical support. You mentioned intelli intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. Uh, I think, you know, as a very, very last resort, <laughs> you know, the U.S. would use them uh, in a kinetic way. Uh, but really, the United States does not want to get involved in this conflict. This is purely about escalation management. Uh, and these are the assets that are being brought into theater to achieve that. Glenn, we've talked about the possibility of the Northern Front becoming a second front, a two-front war. Some have even talked about the West Bank being a third front. Um, and we've talked about the, the possibility of Hezbollah getting involved in this conflict actively. But... There are also reports that the Israeli Defence Minister, Yoav Gallant, has advocated a preemptive strike in the north against Hezbollah, who he says is 10 more times more dangerous than Hamas. And so far, he's not won the argument um, in the Israeli war cabinet. But if Israel would do that, that puts the US then in a very difficult position, doesn't it? If, it, if it's Israel that starts the fight in the north. Well, it could possibly be the case, yes. It depend. It would depend, everything always depends, on the size of a, quote, preemptive strike and, and the, the uh, amount of uh, damage, killing that are caused. Uh, it's certainly true Hezbollah, in conventional military terms, is uh, exponentially more powerful than Hamas. And uh, we all have, I think, heard the reports that, that Iran has provided Hezbollah with 120 to 140,000 rockets, many of which can uh, strike any part of Israel. Uh, their range extends well beyond uh, the borders of the, the furthest point away of Israel. Uh, so uh, Israel has a, um, a real legitimate um, concern about uh, it is an attack uh, from our assessments uh, imminent, and uh, would it be less uh, dangerous to preemptively strike to try to stop that or not. And and that's an, a very difficult equation. Uh, so far, uh, consistently, the Israelis have uh, shown restraint because they don't want to expand the war uh, either. Uh, but that is uh, the, the very complex equation that one has to make in real time when uh, all decisions have negative consequences. 
if, if you go right, it's negative. If you go left, it's negative. Um, and yet you have to go some direction. It's the, uh, the hard challenge they have. But that certainly is why they would be considering a preemptive strike in the seemingly paradoxical objective of limiting uh, harm, certainly, but uh, expansion of the conflict, uh, actually. Colin, how much um, restraint does the U.S. have, an ability to restrain Israel if it wants? I've read reports that there now is a U.S. Uh, Lieutenant General, James Glynn, who previously headed the Marine Special Operations and was involved in the operations against ISIL in Iraq. He's been embedded now in the command structure uh, at the Defence Ministry in Tel Aviv. Well, it's unclear uh, how much the United States can limit uh, the Israelis' response. I do think uh, Israel will listen to U.S. advisors. Uh, and again, I think the United States uh, has little interest in watching this conflict escalate uh, and has zero interest in getting dragged into it. So I think uh, the United States is over there providing advice, hoping that cooler heads prevail. Let's not forget the human suffering involved here, the hostages uh, that are involved, and the children that are dying every day in this conflict. This is heart-wrenching to watch. I think anybody with a heart is, is hoping that, uh, that this war ends sooner rather than later. And I hope uh, the United States is helping figure out a way to bring the fighting to an end. Omar, major military power projection like this also has a global diplomatic effect. How do you think this will be seen, this U.S. troop presence in the region, by Russia and China? Um, you know, a little difficult to say. Obviously, China has uh, warships in the region that have been there for a while but are kind of making a tour. So that uh, dynamic, I think, uh, creates a, a certain type of tension uh, that we, you know, we don't want to see escalate into the into that arena. Um, how those powers are perceiving it, uh, it's difficult to say. But I do know that, um, you know, how this has evolved, and if if the Biden administration, you know, didn't want to see uh, escalation, and I don't think it does, but it's it's reflexive uh, uh, reaction to this whole episode uh, from day one has brought us to this point. And if you didn't think it would bring us to this this point, uh, then you know, then this was a, a huge mistake on its end to think that you know an Israeli. Uh, bombardment of the Gaza Strip without a real plan uh, for the day after wouldn't bring us to this point. And so, uh, you know, the whole thing has been a kind of a dangerous, reckless game uh, that's escalating tensions in the region. And I don't think anybody really wants to see it evolve into something much worse. But that's kind of the direction we're headed in. Glenn, can I end our discussion with get your re reaction to a grim anniversary that just passed 40 years ago? It was October the 23rd, 1983. That's when a suicide bomber hit the U.S. military barracks in Beirut International Airport, killing 241 U.S. servicemen. Um, that was a disastrous moment in the U.S.'s involvement in the Middle East. And, of course, now the president is Joe Biden. He not only knows his history, he lives it because he was a U.S. senator at the time. He said, we've got to change this crazy policy as he introduced a resolution calling from the U.S. withdrawal uh, from Lebanon. What's your thought on, on that echo from history? Some of my colleagues were killed in the, the attacks, the Marine barracks and the American embassy, which occurred not far uh, distant in time from each other. One of the lessons that the U.S., some parts of the U.S., uh, learned was the primary reason for those two attacks was that we were seen to have been, seen to have taken sides in 
fundamentally a civil war, but also in, um, between the, the Palestine Liberation Organization and Israel. And so we uh, angered one of the sides enough to, to try to kill us. Uh, a tactical lesson that we learned was that the rules of engagement of the American forces deployed at the time were designed to uh, avoid escalation, which is a laudable uh, objective, but it meant that the, uh, the response in uh, real time was insufficient, uh, meaning that some of our guards were not allowed to fire on an approaching suicide truck. And those rules of engagement subsequently changed. And I think in the current crisis, it is relevant because what we've all been talking about during this uh, section session is the uh, advanced deployment of tremendous force and the repeated warnings that the United States will use it if uh, provoked. Uh, if someone tries to expand the uh, the conflict, uh, okay, that's a Glenn, lesson. Glenn, uh, thank, 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 thank you very much for that lesson from history. Uh, for all the talk of a pivot to Asia, it seems the U.S. is being forced by events back to the Middle East. Thanks to all our guests, Colin Clark, Omar Rahman, and Glenn Carl. This episode was produced by Mohammed Alaishi, Sarah Gill, Fungi Nguyen, and Gemma Harris. Studio sound was by Sasha Andreevich. The program was edited by Zaina Bada and Joe DeFries. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thanks for listening. Tune in on Wednesday for our next episode. Coming up on The Take, the reach and the risks of solidarity movements. A roundtable discussion with activists on how they're challenging mainstream narratives surrounding Palestine and Israel, online and in the streets. That's The Take by Al Jazeera. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.